The Capital Weekly Podcast is supported by TASSEN, the Tribal Alliance of Sovereign Indian Nations. Funding for the Capital Weekly Podcast is provided by the California Endowment and by TASSEN, the Tribal Alliance of Sovereign Indian Nations. Greetings and welcome to Capital Weekly's regular podcast. I'm joined by my colleague Tim Foster. Hello. And our special guest today is Frank Mecca, who just recently announced he was retiring from the California, excuse me, from the Association of uh, County Welfare Directors Association of California after having been there uh, since you were a mere sprout at the age of 26, since 1991. And I guess, Frank, the first thing I wanted to ask you, you've been involved in advocacy for the welfare directors for many, many years. What changes have you seen since you took over? About the same time, I think, Republican Governor Pete Wilson came into power. Well, first, thank you for having me. And um, it is sort of hard for me, even me, to believe that I'm approaching 30 years as the executive director of CWDA. And um, it's been the opportunity of a lifetime. If you're a social welfare policy wonk with an advocacy spirit who wants to make change, um, man, what an opportunity I've had over the past 30 years. When I'm trying to think about the key changes that have occurred over my career, there are a lot of programs and policies that have changed over the years. Mm -hmm. Um, But sort of at its core, when I started at CWDA, we still had a welfare system. This was prior to Bill Clinton signing the Personal Responsibility Act. We still had a welfare system that was really fundamentally based on a lot of myths about why people are poor and based on um, pretty, by current standards, sexist and racist notions of why people are poor and how you should help them and how you should not help them. And I think over my career, probably our field's biggest challenge, the area where we've made a lot of success and the area where we still have a ton of work to do is attacking those myths about poverty, maltreatment, and trauma that undergird public policies in significant ways. And I feel like in a way we've spent, I've spent 30 years being part of a movement that's been chipping away um, at those myths. So, for example, in the mid-'90s, on a bipartisan basis, the legislature passed uh, a policy known as the Maximum Family Grant, a policy that if a child is conceived while a parent is being aided, the child is not aided. Um, And it was based on this idea that poor people have babies to get larger checks. It's It's an incentive. And all the research tells us that's hogwash. It's not true. But the isms that those policies are based on, it's it's isms like racism and misogyny that drive myths about poverty that then create the cultural sort of foundation for a lot of public policy. And we've been attacking those, those myths. And so we've done a lot. We've eliminated that family cap, but it took 20 years. We've reduced an extraordinary amount of, of unnecessary paperwork and documentation because we're, we feared unreasonably fraud. We have expanded benefits to legal immigrants who earlier in my career 
were prohibited from receiving necessary safety net services to take care of their to take care of their children. Um, we eliminated a ban on aid for people who've had a drug felony but who've served their time. So you get the sense there's there's so many policies that are contrary to what policymakers want. Policymakers want everybody to thrive and to be able to do that with as little government assistance as possible. And what we have discovered more and more through research over my career is that the number one way to help people escape poverty is to give them the resources to be able to help themselves and take care of their children so that their children can thrive and then not also find themselves in poverty. Uh, Frank, do you think the improvements that have gradually taken place over the years, is that a result of the change and the dynamics of the legislature going to a more more democratic controlled, now overwhelmingly democratic controlled legislature, did that play a part in this? I think that's played a part, um, for sure. But I also think the inexorably growing and grotesque income and wealth inequality is hard for anyone to escape, Democrat or Republican. I also think there's more and more research about the effect of poverty on the developing child's brain. Um, so, yes, it's politics, but I think it's also research and good advocacy. And these, um, these changes in how, how broadly society is experiencing want. I said, you know, in jest a few years ago, when the homeless people hit the suburbs, all of a sudden it's an existential bipartisan problem that we all have to solve. And so it's hard, to, it's hard to look away from wealth and income inequality and homelessness and children suffering because of poverty and not think, we have to do better than we've been doing. You know, I saw a number, um, and this, I believe, is from the uh, California Poverty Measure, uh, PPIC slash Stanford um, uh, measurement, that says 750,000 children live in poverty in California, and about one in five live very close to the poverty line in California. Is that consistent with what you've learned over the years as you've worked with this issue? It is, and PPIC has done great work on uh, the California uh, poverty measure. Um, It is the case, and this is the half-empty, half-full retrospective on my career. We, a couple of years ago, led by uh, Senator Holly Mitchell, now County Supervisor Holly Mitchell, um, we raised welfare grants so that no child lives in deep poverty, which is 50% or lower than the poverty level. Mm-hmm. But that means as a matter of policy, we're okay um, with children living in non-deep poverty, which is still an extremely precarious um, position. I mean, that Mm -hmm. poverty rate has fluctuated as the economy has fluctuated, but if between one in four and one in five children are growing up in a condition that we know affects their brain development and diminishes their life prospects, uh, we as a field continue to have a lot of work to do. And so while I'm proud of the work we've done, um, I'm going to encourage the people who come after me to keep at it because we haven't come close to finishing the job. It seemed like um, it seemed like the economy as a whole was getting better after the Great Recession. We started recovering from that. Uh, now the economy is very fragile, and lots of resources from the state 
are going to help people who have lost jobs. More and more resources, I think, in the coming year are going to go that way. There's less, uh, the, the pie is smaller to cut up for um, public assistance, at least it seems to me. Do you have any thought about that? And what does the future, about in the next, just short term, in the next year, in terms of programs, um, public assistance programs? I think what the pandemic has revealed um, is just how pernicious poverty is um, on all people, but in particular people of color. And I think it also, when you look at the pandemic at the same time as a national reckoning on structural racism and implicit bias in our society, I don't accept the idea that the pie isn't big enough to continue the work to rectify those completely unacceptable situations. When the pandemic hit, the legislature and the governor very appropriately, and I think very effectively said, we have to do everything we can um, to stop the spread of this disease and to help as many people as we possibly can. I think the, the irony of the post-pandemic economy is that you're seeing revenue doing pretty well which is a statement that the really rich people haven't been affected by the pandemic very negatively. And they're the people that we disproportionately tax to run services, a a progressive system that I I heartily endorse. So to me, I don't think we can afford not to do it. Um, I don't think we can afford the effect of having an entire generation of children and other people who've been affected by the pandemic to live the effects of that pandemic for the rest of their lives through diminished educational opportunities, poorer health outcomes, poorer productivity. Poverty is extremely costly to society. Um, But, uh, you know, government, I guess in the private sector, we're not terrific at thinking a generation or two ahead. What would you say is the hardest sell uh, you have to make that you face when you appear before legislative committees and argue for funding, improved funding for public assistance? That is a terrific question. And by far the hardest ask um, and the hardest argument is that um, if you want to help children, you have to give their parents cash. We have this Horatio Alger myth that anybody who really wants to make it can, and that government's aid should be small and temporary, um, and that if, if it's not small and temporary, people will become quote-unquote dependent on aid. None of the research suggests that that's the case. What the research tells us is that if you want to ch- break an intergenerational cycle of poverty, you want a child's brain to develop, you want to enhance their educational and their health and their employment opportunities, you want to minimize the prospect of them coming into contact with the criminal justice system or having children out of wedlock or being in poverty themselves, the number one thing that you can do to help that child is to give their parents cash. And all of those isms, all of those myths about poverty and why people are poor, they're enduring. After 30 years, we've chipped away, but they it's like whack-a-mole. And... Um, it's really hard for many public officials to say, yeah, but what if their parent doesn't do X? And we say, look, we're going to work with those parents to do everything they can 
But while we're doing that, you're consigning that child to a life of diminished opportunities, and they're going to be costly to society if you just don't give the parents cash. Because when you give the parents cash, research tells us they spend it on their kids. Often it's not parents, uh, plural, but uh, a single parent with children. At one point, I, I seem to recall the average welfare recipient was a single woman with two children. Is that still true, or is that has that changed over the years? It's still the modal sort of um, uh, person on CalWORKs. There are other aspects of the safety net, clearly, but for the safety net for children, um, it is still predominantly mothers and their children, but just, we have to remember that those children have fathers, too, and we have a child sure. support system to, to encourage those parents, the fathers, absent parents, to support the children. But yes, that is the case. I know there are myriad programs out there uh, for assistance and help in various at various levels. What are the programs out there? Could you kind of walk us through a little bit, state and local, and perhaps federal money comes in here too? Absolutely. And I should say that most of the programs I'll talk about, the biggies, the big safety net programs, are state, federal, um, and locally uh, funded in, to, to some degree or another. Um, but if we're talking just about families with families with children, um, the number one program is obviously CalWORKs, where we provide income assistance so that children don't live in destitution, but we also provide childcare, transportation, housing services, and other supportive services so that people who can go to work um, get prepared as much as possible to be able to go to work. Um, those families and um, other people who aren't quite as poor as those on CalWORKs can also get CalFresh, um, and that's nutritionist. That's the program formerly known as food stamps, and that is the biggest safety net program um, because as the economy, for example, during the Great Recession, we saw CalFresh caseloads swell. During the pandemic, we're seeing them go up significantly as well because that's a benefit that you can get based on your income and your household status, but you don't have to have a dependent child, for example. One big success that I would like to credit the legislature, Jerry Brown, um, is the creation of the state earned income tax credit. Um, we now have a benefit modeled loosely after a federal benefit where we aid low income and very low income people through the tax system by giving them a credit based on their earnings. Um, that's an extremely effective program at, at fighting poverty, but also encouraging work at the same time. Um, so on the income assistance, those are the big programs. Obviously, for elderly people, um, for non-dependent elderly people who don't have a disability or they're not um, aged, blind, or disabled with caretaking needs, the state SSI program um, is the major anti-poverty program for senior citizens. And in California, we have the largest home care entitlement program for low-income people who need help with um, daily living tasks, and that's the IHSS, the In-Home Supportive Services Program. Is there a, a fed, solely a federal program of assistance, or, or is the money always mixed with state and local? Is there always a mix of funds um, to provide the services that you're talking about? There's, there are very few. There are some small federal programs, but if you look at the biggest federal anti-poverty program, SSI, 
the state has a supplement, SSP, so there's state sharing there. In CalWORKs, there is a state contribution. The CalFresh benefit is solely federally funded, and the state and counties have to pay a share of the administration of that program. Uh, um, I, should al- I should also say that the state of California has provided state-only benefits for excluded populations. For example, there are legal immigrants who are excluded from the federal CalFresh program um, and from SSI that we have created state-only programs to supplement. So it really is a partnership between all levels of government to weave this uh, safety net that we have together. Did you have any special problems uh, lobbying or advocating for services dealing with the, the Trump administration? Been problems elsewhere in the, in the landscape, uh, infrastructure and environmental, and how did that play out in uh, advocating for the poor? Uh, we absolutely did. So the county human service agencies perform the eligibility function for Medi-Cal. We don't, we don't provide the medical benefits themselves, but we enroll people. Um, and just one big example that's been oft reported is the Trump administration's public charge rule that's been the subject of litigation. It's on, it was off, it was on, it was off. Um, and the Trump administration's deliberate attempts to chill eligible people who are in the country legally from taking advantage of benefits that they need to live and to survive has been a major challenge for California and one that the president-elect's new HHS secretary has sued the Trump administration on. But since we run these large programs, there are scores of issues where we need federal approval, we deal with federal regulations, um, and generally speaking, I think we can say that the Trump administration has been inhospitable to many of the important things that California has needed. Um, and I am, I'm thrilled that a Californian is the HHS director, there's a Californian in the White House, because we have a lot of work to do in partnership with the federal government to shore up this safety net. What do you think the chances are of him getting confirmed? We're talking about Javier Becerra getting confirmed in D.C. and actually getting in. I don't, I mean, it's a good question, and I don't know. Um, uh, I mean, obviously, part of that question depends on what happens in the two Senate runoffs in Georgia. The Even Mitch McConnell could overplay his hand by taking on qualified people um, because of a political axe to grind. I mean... The Senate has to allow a duly elected president some reasonable administrative leeway to form their team. And, I mean, we've heard concerns about the the Neera Tandon, the the nominee to take the director of the Office of Management and Budget, and I I just don't think the Senate can willy-nilly just oppose everyone that the Republican majority doesn't like. It's a a terrible precedent. So um, my gut says... Uh, Mr. Becerra will be fine in a confirmation. One of the issues that always comes up in California is how uh, money should be administered in, the, in, in terms of public assistance. And one of the, one of the uh, solutions for that were block grants. And I don't know if they're still out there or not, but, it, but the money is approved, 
but it's allocated the counties who have the discretion how to distribute and how to, uh, how to actually uh, parcel out the funds. And it seemed like the block grants were not supported by a lot of people who were in favor of improving public assistance. Do you have any thoughts about block grants? Are they still out there? And if so, is it an impediment to doing the kinds of things you'd like to do? Or? I, I think it's a, it's a mixed bag. At the fe- if you look at the federal welfare program called TANF, that's essentially a block grant. And states can do what they will. And when the federal government has block granted programs in the health and human services space, the promise of greater flexibility for states and locals generally gets eroded. So the, the, the deal with the devil on block grants is you're not going to get growth just depending on how many people you serve. We're going to cap how much money we're giving you. But in exchange for that, we're going to give you some reasonable, uh, reliable growth that's modest in size, but we're going to give you a lot of flexibility to decide what to do with that money. And over the course of my career, invariably, the promise of flexibility lasts a nanosecond before uh-huh. the elected officials start dictating the rules again. And so at the end of the day, my experience has more often been that we're worse off than when we had a categorical program that preceded the block grants. And the block grants are more often a device to touch as opposed to a, de- a device to make government work better. In California, the state has, quote-unquote, realigned funding for much of health and welfare from the state to locals. And in exchange for that realignment, the, the counties get a share of a revenue source. Our experience is much less negative with, uh, between the state and the counties than the states have had with the federal government. They've been far less likely to abrogate the deal. But even still, unexpected things happen. Think about the pandemic. What if, what if public health or welfare programs or CalFresh were block granted based on historical averages and then something really out of the ordinary happens, the Great Recession, a once-in-a-generation pandemic? Will the funding system be flexible enough to accommodate the unexpected? And they usually aren't. And then lobbyists like me are back in saying, hey, that block grant that worked for the last couple of years doesn't work anymore, and now we need additional funding because no one could have anticipated what just happened. Well, here's one question. It has nothing to do with public assistance. But Tim and I were chatting before uh, the program, and I think the question was who... If anybody you could pick anybody you wanted uh, to have dinner with, who would you choose? FDR. <laughs> I knew the answer to that. I just wanted you to say, why FDR? I mean, if we're talking about my political and my professional life, I mean, if it was my personal life, I'd want to see my dad again. Sure, yeah. But you think about what FDR did and lived through, and then think about what we're doing right now. The, the presiding over the Great Depression, the creation largely out of whole cloth, of much of the safety net, Um, a pandemic, a world war, the experience that he had meeting those challenges as a human being, dealing with a Congress that was sometimes helpful and sometimes not, Uh and doing it in a way that reflected a time when duty and honor and public service really did rise above partisanship. 
And I wonder what he would think about uh, what we're going through right now yeah. and what he would have to say about it. Well, it's interesting. We're talking about this today, yeah. December 7th. We're recording this on December 7th. So obviously right. he had challenges we can't even imagine. Yes. Yeah. Well, Frank Mecca, thank you so much. Thanks for your time. Thanks for chatting with us today. I uh, really enjoyed it. Tim Foster, thank you Thanks, so John. much. Yep. Thank you for joining us, and we will touch base with you next time around. Take care. Take care. Thank you.